Yo, welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast, episode number 34. I am Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com and the host of the podcast. Follow us on philliesnation.com for all of your Phillies news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation, Twitter at philliesnation, and Instagram at philliesnation underscore. Today on the podcast, we will talk very minor moves. Not a lot has been happening the last couple weeks, so we're going to talk about Francisco Rodriguez, Adam Rosales. Again, not a lot going on. And some interesting news that happened yesterday. Mark Appel, Philly's prospect who they acquired in the Ken Giles trade, is decided to step down from baseball, at least for 2018, potentially for his entire career. I talked to the man who broke that story, June Lee, a staff writer with Bleacher Report, that interview comes up a little bit later on. Follow the Phillies Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can look up Phillies Nation podcast. Give us a five-star review. Give us an awesome write-up. Please do so. It helps us pick up any sort of heat and pick up any sort of uh, listeners. It's great to put your opinion down on that. Five-star reviews are always welcome. And that is it. Nothing else. Very, very minor stuff. So with that, let's get going with the podcast. And Phillies Nation, welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast, episode number 34. I am Tim Malcolm. I'm the host. Yes, I totally get it. There's absolutely uh, no chance for me to think that we're going to get a ton of listeners this week. Uh, I'm also recording this on the Friday of Super Bowl weekend, so I, I cannot imagine people like taking a lot of time to listen to this. I'm sure everybody's listening and watching their hype videos, listening to all the Eagles podcasts that they can consume. Bleeding Green Nation is great, by the way. You should listen to them. Um, I get it. Like this is a very not Phillies week and weekend right now. But and I'm with you because I'm just going nuts right now, getting ready for Sunday. But we do have Phillies Nation to kind of put out there. Phillies podcast. We got stuff to talk about. So we're gonna talk some Phillies for a little bit here. Um, it's been, of course, a very minor week for the Phillies and for baseball. We continue to be in this very cold off-season cycle where there are very few moves happening and it's sort of maddening. I think we're just waiting and wait like when is Darvish going to go? When is Arietta going to go? When is everything else going to follow th- suit like, you know, through them? Uh what about JD Martinez? What about, you know, any of the other uh players Eric Hosmer is is still out there. I mean, there's a ton of of talent that is available in the free agent market and teams have not yet made serious plays. We've heard some rumors and whispers, but it's been a very, very, very slow offseason. Really, aside from, of course, Carlos Santana coming to the Phillies, which was the big move early on in the offseason, and then things were very stale until finally a couple trades happened. We saw, uh, of course, Garrett Cole uh, got traded to the Houston Astros from the Pirates, uh, not even to mention the Giancarlo Stanton trade. Uh, and then just recently, in the last couple of weeks, we saw the Marlins finish off their fire sale by sending Christian Yelich over to the Milwaukee Brewers. And in the same day, in fact, about an, 
half an hour later, I would say, the Milwaukee Brewers decided to sign Lorenzo Cain to a free agent contract, which then became just about as big a contract as the Carlos Santana deal. So the Brewers are making a play for the playoffs in 2018. It looks as if they think that at least the wild card is theirs for the taking. And I don't see, I, I don't blame them. If you look at the National League for next year, you have the Dodgers, you have the Nationals, the Cubs you figure will be right there as well, and then it's pretty wide open as far as the wild cards. And maybe the Brewers can sneak into the Central Division race with the Cubs there, but you have the Cardinals, uh, you have the Giants trying to make a play, obviously. They've made a couple moves and are thinking maybe we can get one more hurrah out of this older team. And then you have the Rockies and the Diamondbacks who were both there last year. They're going to be in the mix for sure. The Brewers, meanwhile, seem to be about a 500 team, and then they bring in Christian Yelich. They trade a bunch of prospects, and a actually a pretty good deal for the Marlins. They get uh, Lewis Brinson, who's a pretty good prospect, and then a couple other decent prospects who are going to be close, if not at Major League ready for 2018. So the Brewers thinking here, we have an opportunity. We have a couple really good young players on our team. We've built some good role players around them. Ryan Braun is toward the end of his his time in Milwaukee. We should try to get the best out of that we can. Our pitchers are starting to come of age here. We have an opportunity to get from 500 to potentially an 88, 89, 90-win team. And so trading for Christian Yelich and then in the same hour signing Lorenzo Cain, the Brewers think they can maybe do something, and I don't blame them for that. Now, of course, the questions become... Could the Phillies have done that? You know, we were all talking about Christian Yelich as if he might have been coming to Philadelphia at some point. He was part of the Phillies' conversations over the trade deadline last year. And then in the offseason this year, we thought maybe it could happen. They could try to trade either Odubel Herrera or Nick Williams uh, with a bunch of prospects for someone like a Christian Yelich. Well, that didn't happen. And it seems as if the Phillies are rightly thinking we're not quite there yet. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers, as a point of comparison, were they're about a year ahead of the Phillies. In 2016, they had a pretty bad season, and they were just seeing some of their young players start to come of age. 2017, last year, they got a couple role players to be around those young players, and what happened was the Brewers became a much better team, and unexpectedly so. They got over 500. They were in the race for a wild card for much of the year. They came down to the very end of the season trying to get that wild card, and they missed out against the Rockies. But they were pretty close. And I think the Brewers think now, hey, we know we can compete. We're going to get a couple of players who are going to put us over the top and at least get us into the playoff conversation. And so that makes sense. For the Phillies, they're not there yet. They won, what, 70 or 66 games last year. We hope that they will win somewhere between 72 and 78 games next year, which would be a market improvement. At that point, I think you can then say, okay, who will get us to the point where we're competing for a playoff spot right now though there's not enough players on the market and available for trade that are going to get the Phillies that contention um, the only way that they would do that is if they basically get rid of their whole farm system and they would have to sell everybody we're talking Sixto Sanchez Scott Kingery we're talking all the pitchers that are in double a area would have to sell all of those guys in order to be a competitive team for 2018 and there's no reason to do that because the Phillies have finally built a great farm system now, with that, Baseball America rated the Phillies farm system number six in all of baseball. Those rankings came out this past week, and they also gave their Phillies top ten. And the number one prospect, J.P. Crawford. Well, that makes sense. Crawford, yeah, he, he was in the major leagues last year, but not for too long, and he did not accrue enough at-bats 
to be eligible for a rookie season last year. So he kind of played, you know, his cup of coffee season last year. He will be a rookie this year. It looks like he's going to be on the opening day roster as a starting shortstop. But J.P. Crawford, rightly so, gets the number one prospect spot for the Phillies. What does he have? Great defensive shortstop. He could play multiple infield positions. He gets on base at a very good clip. Last year, he even demonstrated that he can get on base at a good clip while not hitting the ball as well as we'd like him to. But he just started in the major leagues. We're not expecting anything. Also, small sample size. The power hopefully will come. All those things will be great. Beyond him, Sixto Sanchez was right there in the rankings. Scott Kingry was number three. And then as you go down the list, um, you had, uh, I believe... Uh, Jorge Alfaro was on the list, uh, although he might not have been on the list. Now I'm kind of forgetting. I'm blanking right now. Um, but also, you know, a lot of the pitchers who are in the in the Phillies uh, sort of double-A, single-A realm, you have uh, Jose Tavares, Jojo Romero, Sir Anthony Dominguez. They're all rating pretty high right now, and it's a really good time to look at that double-A, triple-A group because all those guys are very close to being in the major leagues and they're all rating very high with the prospect uh, prospect sites. So you're going to see this next year a lot of movement happen happening. You're going to see potentially Scott Kingery come to the major league level. We're all thinking about that. Sixto Sanchez will be likely in Reading at some point this year if not to start the year. And then you're going to have guys like Tavares and Dominguez and Jojo Romero and uh, Ranger Suarez all in that either Clearwater or Reading area. And that means they're going to get some really big innings. You know, they're going to finally be stretched out. They're going to probably get over 120 innings or so this coming year. And you're going to see if they can adjust to better hitting at AA and AAA. So this is a crucial year for those guys. And for the Phillies farm system, which has been years in the making right now, it's a big moment because if they have a couple of these guys really show, you know, really blossom in AA, then you know that in 2019, this team has a really good outlook for the future uh, because we all believe Sixto Sanchez can be a number one, number two guy. If he can show that in Reading, then... It looks like, hey, we have a guy that we can pencil into the rotation, if not in 2019, definitely 2020. So the Phillies made a couple small moves over the week, and they were, I guess, interesting. I wouldn't say shocking because none of these moves really are shocking, but they're interesting because we didn't really see them coming. One of them being Francisco Rodriguez. Now, this was crazy. Um, Rodriguez coming to the Phillies in a minor league deal with an invitation to spring training. He is going to make, I believe, something like uh, $1.75 million, I believe it is, if he, uh, if he makes the team. And before you get outraged about the fact that the Phillies are bringing in a veteran reliever to be in spring training, these kinds of deals, they don't mean a lot. They are more an opportunity to see what the guy has left in his tank. Rodriguez is in his age 36 season. He had a 7.82 ERA last year with just 23 strikeouts and 11 walks in 25 innings with the Detroit Tigers. Now, the Tigers, the worst team in baseball last year, right? Right there at the top. If Rodriguez couldn't hang with the Tigers, don't imagine he's going to hang with the Phillies in 2018. I think the Phillies are going to see if he can catch lightning in a bottle. If he looks like the K-Rod that was there, I mean, let's not believe that he's going to be anywhere near the K-Rod that he was with the Angels. But if he was, the, if he's the K-Rod that he was maybe a couple years ago with Milwaukee, where he was putting up an ERA in the twos and the early threes, and he had a good strikeout-to-walk ratio, 
Now that's a guy who's valuable, and that's a guy that you can put in your bullpen and maybe give him some middle innings and see if he can even get more out of that. But last year he was pretty bad. Uh, it looks like he's kind of at the tail end of his career. You know, he's been around forever, and the Phillies are going to see if there's anything there. And if not, they're just going to move on with him. But don't believe that Rodriguez is here to win a spot in the bullpen. I mean, they're all here to win a spot, but the chances of him actually making the Major League bullpen in 2018 are pretty slim to none. Then again, if he shows something that we have not thought we were going to see, then there you go. He gets a shot in the major leagues, and that'd be great because it's found money. But otherwise, don't believe that he's going to get a real opportunity to be in the major leagues in 2018. Someone with a little bit more of a chance is Adam Rosales, who the Phillies signed to a minor league deal with a invitation to spring training. He will earn $1.75 million if he makes uh, the squad out of Clearwater. Last year, he played with Oakland and Arizona, split the year between the two teams. Wasn't very good. Overall, he hit 225, 260, 353, seven home runs, 36 RBI. He's got a little bit of power, which is kind of interesting. Utility infielder, but he could play every position. <clears throat> Just about, he could play first base, second base, third base, shortstop, left field, right field. Never really played center field, and he's never played catcher, but and he's never pitched. So... Utility infielder who plays a lot of positions. That's something that Matt Klintak, I'm sure, is taking as a very valuable asset. He wants guys who can have flexibility, move around the diamond a little bit, show a lot of skills. His fielding is fine in all those positions. His hitting is the thing that needs work, obviously. He's never been one to have a big on-base percentage. He's never been one to have a great batting average. And his slugging, while a little bit better than normal, he, it's not still very great. So... What you're looking for is a guy who can come off the bench, maybe spell J.P. Crawford a little bit, spell Cesar Hernandez a little bit, not really be counted on to do too much, but make the plays and maybe get a hit once in a while out of the eight hole when he's in there. That's about it. He will compete with Pedro Florimon for a spot on the Major League roster. You also have Jesmel Valentin, who will be there, and um, Alexander Alvarez will also be there, who they picked up from the Cardinals last year. Uh, in that um, Juan Nicasio trade. So there are some options there for the Phillies going into spring training in 2018 for utility infield. They have stocked up on a ton of these guys, and one of them will prevail. And I think with the Phillies, they're probably thinking that utility infield is not a big deal. They just want to have the best possible guy in there. Makes sense, but there will be a heavy competition for that role in 2018 if Adam Rosales wins it then you will see a lot of moving around the diamond with him getting some spots at second, third, short, maybe even outfield. Whatever happens, uh, at least the Phillies have some flexibility to work with there, and that would be good. As I said, the other big news over the week was just happening yesterday. Mark Appel, who was part of the trade that sent Ken Giles to Houston. Of course, the Phillies in that trade got Appel, plus Vince Velasquez, Tom Eshelman, uh, Brett Oberholzer, remember him, and Harold Arouse, who was a relief pitcher who will probably be in Reading this coming year and really has an outside shot of actually being in the Major League bullpen, had very good numbers in 2017. So there is an option there for the Phillies to get something out of this trade still. Now, Velasquez has been sort of mediocre. He's had some great moments. He's had mostly poor moments, and he will get a shot in 2018 to finally stick in the rotation. Might be his last shot, but he will get that shot nonetheless. 
Tom Eshelman was very good in the minor leagues over the past couple of years and will surely get a shot to be in the major league rotation in 2018. We'll see how long it takes for him to get there. It, I would probably put maybe July as the date, uh, but you know, if you want to do an over-under, we can do that too. Otherwise, the Phillies haven't gotten a lot of success out of that deal. Oberholzer, of course, is gone. He was, uh, I think, released by the Phillies and then has gone somewhere else where he's given up a lot of home runs. He's just not really been a very um, reliable starter or reliever. Harold Arales, as I said, should be in the bullpen at some point. This coming year, he will probably be in Reading, but he looks like he's at least a pretty competent reliever. And then you have Mark Appel, who, when he went to Lehigh Valley in 2016, didn't have the worst year, but it wasn't very promising. 4.46 ERA with 34 strikeouts and 20 walks. He had a lot of shoulder pain, or excuse me, he had a um, he had a bone spur injury in 2016, which kept him out for quite a while, and he actually had to get a procedure on that. That was not very good for him. Came back in 2017 with Lehigh Valley and put up an even worse line, 5.27 ERA with 60 strikeouts and 53 walks. The command has just gone south completely for him, and it just wasn't looking promising for him. It looked as if if there was anywhere for Appel to be on the depth chart, it was even beyond number 10. I would say if you put a depth chart together today, it would be Noel at 1, Velasquez at 2, Wyckoff at 3, Pavetta at 4. I would probably put maybe Ben Lively at 5, Jake Thompson at 6, Mark Letter Jr. probably at 7, I guess, um, Tom Eshelman at 8, um, and I don't know. Is there anybody else who kind of figures in? Zach Eflin, who will be coming back from an injury at 9, and then maybe Appel comes in there at 10, which is very far down the list. And, you know, it's still viable for him to make the major leagues, but it, to him, wasn't really something that he was excited about anymore. In fact, in this great story that was written by June Lee with uh, Bleacher Report, he talked about how Mark Appel uh, was just not feeling it anymore as a baseball player. He really missed being around his family. He was getting tired of the rigmarole of being on the bus all the time and going from place to place. And more than anything, he was just lost confidence in what he had as a pitcher. And he didn't want to define his life as being a pitcher in the major leagues or the minor leagues or anywhere by that matter. He just wanted to be Mark Capel and live his best life. And it's a great story. You should read it. Um, it goes really in depth about what it means to be a baseball player and what is most valuable to some of these guys. And to some guys, it's different. Some guys just want to be a ball player and can't get away from the game. Some guys, though, value other things as well, and they want to pursue those things. And that's what Mark Appel is doing. And I think that's very, very respectful and uh, extremely, you know, uh, you know, wonderful for him to kind of have that clarity and see that that's what he wants to do with his life. I wish him all the best. I hope that he figures out what he wants to do and, and it, you know, works out really well for him. It seems like at the very least, he is very confident and happy in his decision, which is great. Maybe he'll come back to the majors or the minors or wherever he wants to come back and he plays baseball again. That would be awesome too. And hopefully he will get a shot in the majors and finally have some success there. But uh, either way, for Mark Appel, a clear-headed decision that you can't fault at all. I mean, the guy has gone through a lot, and he was extremely hyped as the number one pick back in 2013. It didn't quite work out for him, but look, you want to call him what you want to call him. He's made a great decision with his life, and we hope that it pays off for him. I'm sure it will because he's a smart guy who really believes in himself, and that's going to be all you need most of the time in life. 
All right. Well, I have June Lee on the phone right now. He's a staff writer with Bleacher Report, and he's the one who wrote the piece Thursday in which uh, it's a piece about Mark Appel, Philly's prospect, who is stepping away from baseball, and it was a pretty surprising piece for us Phillies fans, uh, but a really, really insightful piece. So I think any of you listening should really read that story if you haven't. It's on Bleacher Report right now. Uh, but June, thank you, and uh, welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Tim. I really appreciate it. So um, this is a really uh, kind of amazing thing that happened on Thursday with, you know, we didn't really expect any news about Mark Appel or, you know, there hasn't been very much news with the Phillies at all. But then the story came out and suddenly, oh, my God, you know, Mark Appel is actually going to step away from baseball. And, you know, there are obviously people reacting, you know, bust and all that stuff, and whether that's, you know, fair or not. And I know that you asked me about that in the piece. But it just came out of a, as a shock to a lot of people. So I guess the first question is, how did this all happen? How did you how did you get a hold of this story? What 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 kind of happened so that that you were able to do this? Yeah, so it was kind of a weird, crazy set of circumstances. So I, so Mark, for whatever reason, has followed me on Twitter for the last couple of years. I I just got out of college about a year ago, and uh, he's been following me for maybe like three or four years now, and I didn't really know why. Um, but when he got designated for assignments from the Phillies, I, I pitched a profile on him just kind of as an evergreen thing that we could do. And uh, I'm going to the Olympics next next week, and I had some time in between that and, and, and uh, you know, I wanted to work on something else before I headed over to South Korea. And uh, I'm a big baseball person, so I reached out to Mark just to see kind of gauge his interest on on wanting to do a piece with, with me and, and, and wanted to do something that's kind of more in-depth than, than what has been written about him in the past. And I, I hopped on a phone call with him. This was, I think, like three or four weeks ago. And he, he basically told me at the time off the record that he was going to take a break from baseball. And that was a, a very big surprise for me. It was kind of uh, something that I just had not expected to happen. Um, it, it was just I, I was kind of in the right place at the right time and, and asked at the, at, uh, you know, at, the, at, the, at the right time. And so uh, basically, I, I planned out a trip to Houston about two or three weeks later, based on his schedule, my schedule. Um, and last week, I, I spent let's see, Friday and Saturday and part of Sunday with him, and uh, it was great. I mean, we, we talked a, a, about a lot of things about life, about baseball, and uh, it was just kind of a fortunate set of circumstances that kind of led me to the piece. Did, did you find out why he was following you on Twitter? No, I, I think it was because I like tweeted about baseball, and maybe I had some funny tweets at one point, but I, I really have no idea, honestly. <laughs> okay, uh, that's been interesting to ask him. But um, okay, so so you went down to Houston, you talked to him, um, so you knew going in. I mean, you wanted to write a piece about him before that, as you said, when when you got the sure. Um So how much did you know about Mark, and what what made him an interesting story, you know, for you in the in the in the beginning when you got the FA'd? Yeah, I mean, uh, Mark has always struck me as someone who was super thoughtful. Um, you know, he went to Stanford and, and was one of the top a- a- academic plus athletic athletes combination in the country. He won a couple of awards for that when he was, uh, I think, in his junior and senior year. And so he always struck me as someone who had a kind of a different perspective on being a professional athlete. Um, and, and I wanted to write about that in, in a kind of a thoughtful and interesting way because, you know, one of my goals as a sports writer and as a, as a feature writer, and this is going to sound slightly pretentious, is that I'm going, I, I want to kind of humanize these guys 
um, and, and try to get our readers to understand that, like, these athletes aren't just sports playing robots on the field, that they're, um, that they're people and they have these problems in their lives and that they have to deal with. And, and they're often pretty unique uh, problems and uh, uh, sets of circumstances. And so uh, I, I was really struck by just kind of Mark's intellectualism and also the fact that he was super religious, the fact that so much of his worldview is shaped by his upbringing in the church and how faith kind of guided him through all of his struggles the last couple of years. And so the combination of those two things I thought would create an interesting story. And that was even before I, I knew the news of, of him wanting to step away from, from baseball. Yeah. And I know that the, uh, he quoted the uh, Philippians verse in the story, um, which is a very powerful moment, obviously we'll get to that in a moment. But, um, Talk to me about how it actually happened when you got there. So did you spend the entire time that you were with him at his house? Did you guys, like, go out for, you know, Whataburger or something? Or did you do anything yeah. like that? Or so we went to his favorite store. I got in on Friday, and then a couple hours later I met up with him and his brother John at this Mexican restaurant. It's Galante's Tex-Mex restaurant, which is their favorite restaurant growing up uh, in Houston. And so – we we had dinner and we talked. Mark was actually wearing an A's cap, which I thought was funny, uh, and it was because his best friend uh, and his roommate in college, Stephen Piscotti, is now on Gates, and so he was he was kind of kind of showing solidarity for one of his really good friends. Um, and, and so we talked for an hour, just kind of about how he came to the decision um, and just the draft process. I guess we we talked about how he got drafted by the Pirates and and all the negotiation stuff. And it was kind of interesting, but I wanted to save all the big stuff for the next day, when I, which I basically spent all day at his house. Um, and then we went to his parents' house, uh, and, and we went to this amazing barbecue restaurant uh, near his place, too. Um, and so we, we talked about kind of everything. We kind of talked about our perspective on the world and um, his, his view of religion and, and kind of his struggles and how he got through them. And, and that is uh, predominantly what made the piece, that, that second-day interview. Um, and it was it was pretty striking, honestly, to see how honest and candid he was about everything. I mean, he he kind of didn't pull any punches. He he was very self-aware of how not good he was as a professional baseball player, and it was honestly really surprising and and really refreshing to see someone, um, an athlete who was very who's being very real with himself and um, didn't want to lose themselves from you know, doing something that they didn't want to do anymore. Yeah, he seems like he doesn't want to be defined by one thing or another, whether it's as a ball player or as a bad pitcher or whatever it was. And he, the honesty that he shows is certainly, as you said, you know, it's, it's pretty striking. Um, I, I want to get into so the, so the first part of the piece that really kind of got me was how, um, he, you know, the hype basically that surrounded him. And uh, you had the the quote about from Harold Reynolds in 2013 when he was drafted that he could be in the major leagues later that season. Um, and then there was the Sports Illustrated cover, obviously, and then, you know, the, the Astros uh, prediction and how Appel was uh, talked about as a 2016 Cy Young Award candidate. Like, what Did you get a sense from him about, you know, what all that was 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 kind of registering with him at the time? Because it's got to be unbelievable to live with that sort of hype when you're you know, just coming out of college and you're and you're going into professional ball and you're already being talked about as a Cy Young candidate in three seasons from now. That would be yeah. amazing, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – I think the thing that Mark wanted to make clear was that 
he didn't know what the talent level is like in pro ball. And I think a lot of college players and a lot of high school players don't really get that. You know, they just listen to the experts, uh, you know, the people in the media who are, who are saying that. So, you know, Harold, he, Mark made it a point to bring up Harold Reynolds' prediction, like, uh, you know, Mark, you know, when Harold Reynolds said that he was going to be in the majors in maybe two months, Mark was like, yeah, okay. Like, I don't know anything. Presumably Harold Reynolds knows more about this than me. Um, and so he kind of bought into a little bit with, with some uh, a sense of skepticism. And I think he was brought down to reality pretty quickly and, and understood that um, the expectation doesn't necessarily meet the reality a lot of the time. And that was, I think, kind of the theme that ran through a lot of Mark's professional baseball career was that the expectation almost never aligned with his reality and, and uh, you know, what he was going through at a, at a certain period of time. Yeah, I mean, he actually pitched relatively well that first, like, bit of uh, time that he was, after he was drafted in 2013, it seemed like he actually pitched decently well. So then he goes to Lancaster in 2014. He had the appendectomy, as you wrote, and then Lancaster, and that kind of undid him in a lot of ways. Um, and then you have, of course, the the little piece about how he uh, got lifted from the game after he pitched really poorly, and then he started throwing a ball at a wall. Um what did you? What, did, what was the moment like when he was telling you that story? Because that's that's the kind of story that I don't think a lot of players, you know, maybe they will tell you that story when they're in their forties and far after their careers are over. But sure. this is a guy who could come back into the majors if he wanted to, or in the minors, uh, and he's telling sure. you the story now. What did you get? What sense did you get when he was telling you that? Yeah, so I actually found out about the story. I was just doing some research about Martin and watching some interviews, and I found he he did some sort of testimony. Um, video where he was just talking, talk, kind of talking about his relationship with his faith and sports, and he, he briefly kind of passed over it, uh, that incident in in one of these interviews. And so I was, I hadn't read about that anywhere, and so I was curious to ask more uh, about it more in my sit down with him. And we talked about it for maybe thirty thirty five minutes, and it was uh, it, he was just kind of very candid about what he was going through and how angry he was at himself and kind of what that moment meant for him in, mm-hmm. in kind of giving him a reality check and giving him a, a sense of perspective as to what he values in life and what he thinks is most important for himself. And it was kind of a, a life-changing moment for him. And he says this himself is that, you know, when he realized that, you know, as angry as he could be and how terrible he was that day, uh, life was still moving on, and baseball at the end of the day was still kind of just a game for him. And so he was kind of able to enjoy himself being a professional baseball player, even though he was going through the worst stretch of pitching in his life. And that un- that kind of perspective and that mindset undoubtedly shaped where he went from there and, and why he's making the decision now to leave the game indefinitely. Um, let me go back to, um, to Lancaster. I know you had also mentioned that he was put in this rotation that had a piggyback, piggyback system. And sure. the Astros were known for, for one of the kind of the first teams to really champion that method where you have two pitchers who pitch on the same day who can go long innings and you would have a guy who pitched three to four innings and another guy who pitched three, four innings on top of him and the two guys sure. who pitch every time around. Um, it's funny that he mentioned that, and and then he mentioned the park, the the park that he was playing in was more of a hitter's park. That I, I I don't hear much of pitchers talking about how 
the way that, you know, the team structure, you know, the way that organizations structure their minor league teams can play a factor in how well they pitch. Um, yeah. I think that that, yeah. Th- could that be a problem? Is, is that something that, that people aren't looking at enough that, you know, maybe if organizations are toying with starting rotations and rest days and things like that, then maybe that's something we should reconsider because some of these minor league pitchers don't want to have that sort of change in their lives? I mean, it's uh, it's hard for me to say personally because I'm not a professional pitcher and I don't know what kind of toll this has on those guys' bodies. I can say from Mark's vantage point um, that going to the piggyback system, pitching every four days, pitching three to five innings or whatever, it really kind of had a, a massive toll on his body uh, adjusting from college because his body was used to pitching every seven days. And so his arm got really, really worn down over the course of that. Um, and he, he talked to his manager and Astros, uh, it was, I mean, the rotation was, was really based off of what the Astros wanted. So even if he wanted to have an extra day off, it was hard for them to deviate from that schedule because it was, it was not coming from the managers. It was coming from the front office. And so, uh, Mark didn't have a choice. And so, over the course of being in Lancaster, and in addition to being in what is one of the most pitcher-friendly, uh, sorry, hitter-friendly ballparks in all of professional baseball, uh, he, he was getting worn down. His velocity was going down. He's entirely less effective as a result of his body not being ready to pitch every four days. Uh, and I know that he thinks about that um, quite a bit. Uh, you know, he doesn't dwell a lot on the what ifs, but this is one that he we talked about a lot. Is that he his body just wasn't ready to to pitch like that. And mm-hmm. some pitchers, it, it was a situation where it benefited them, where uh, it got them a lot more exposure, it got them a lot more reps, and having that extra, having a bunch of extra pitchers because of the piggybacking system gave a lot of guys opportunities to make a name for themselves. But for him personally, it just didn't work, um, and and that was kind of the reality of it. It set a, it set a, a tone for the rest of his pro career. I wonder, did he did he mention to you the names of any you know managers or coaches or trainers or anybody even outside of the organizations that he was in? that had any sort of impact and were mentors to him, kind of getting through all of his struggles? I mean, he, he kept talking about his teammates and how he was he continued to be able to enjoy the presence of his teammates, uh, whether that was in Lancaster or otherwise. Uh, he mentioned Ronnie Linares, who was the manager at Lancaster, and though Ronnie didn't really have control over the pitching rotation, he mentioned him as someone who was uh, especially supportive of his struggles uh, down in single A when he was just getting rocked and had a yeah. 90 ERA. Um but yeah, I mean that was that was kind of it. Um, so he gets traded to the Phillies in December of 2015, which uh, you know was a big trade for everybody involved. I mean, obviously Ken Giles going over to the Astros and he's made a big impact with them. And over to Philly comes Vince Velasquez and Tom Eshelman and Brett Oberholzer and uh, Arouse and now uh, Mark Appel. Did he talk about that trade and and what that? Sort of what because he at that point you know leaves a, a lot of the guys who he came up with and you know you talked about how he was friends with Altuve and McCullers and guys like that mm-hmm. in the Astros organization did that trade really kind of impact him in any way emotionally or spiritually or anything like that? I think it just was another thing in his life that reminded him that baseball is a business and he was surprised at the time of the trade um, but I don't think he was personally affected like it's something he said to me was that if he you know, he lives in Houston to this day because he, he grew up there and his family lives there. Um, but if he was walking down the streets of Houston and saw Jeffrey Lunau, he would have no problem talking to him. And 
and, you know, holding up a conversation for, you know, however much time. Uh, so he, he didn't feel like personally affected by that, and he understood where they were coming from because at the end of the day, baseball is a business. And so I don't think Mark was personally affected by, by being traded from his hometown team. Um, and then the last few years in Philly uh, with the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, basically, he's uh, been uh, definitely a shell of what we would hope he would be. I mean, his, his sure. walk rate was very high. Um, his ERA had been climbing up. His fifth wasn't very good. And he had a lot of shoulder problems. And you mentioned that, too. How much has the shoulder been a problem? Well, he had the shoulder, and then he also had, uh, I think, another injury. He had a bone spur. Yeah. Um, yeah. How much were those really an issue for him the last couple of years? Huge. And I think he, he, he admitted this himself is that he didn't let on to, you know, the media uh, and, and just the general public how much the injuries were affecting him. Um, and it, it, it wasn't until this year when he was rehabbing um, his latest injury that he started thinking about whether or not baseball was for him because he wanted to spend more time with his family. He felt kind of alone and isolated at a hotel town in Florida while he was rehabbing. Um, and eventually that was kind of what pushed him over the edge, is that he he wanted to spend more time with his family, and he wanted to do other things uh, besides baseball because Mark is probably one of the most smart, is, is one of the smartest athletes that I've, I've ever personally talked to, and he's got this great perspective on life, um, and he's got a lot of other interests besides baseball. And so it was the injuries piled up and just the accumulation of all of that, I think is what eventually kind of pushed him out of the game because he didn't want to be on the road anymore, not pitching and not pitching well and not doing something that, that he enjoyed, um, you know, the injury rehab. And and so that is eventually what um, pushed him out uh, and uh, is, is, is was the impetus for him taking a break from baseball. You know, you talked about this uh, early in the conversation, then in the story, of course, and it's kind of been the whole MO or the whole theme of this, this piece is, um, you know, someone who is looking at baseball as just part of life, and it's a game, but it's also a job, but it's part of life. And life right. is much more, and there's and there's so much that you have to consider. I actually, I wrote a piece for the Hardball Times not long ago about Scott Matheson, who was a former Philly mm-hmm. prospect who now is in Japan and pitching very well. But he had to make some very tough decisions about what was most important to him. And it seems as if we're getting a little better with trying to, as, at least as writers, tell people, that baseball players are not just guys who are numbers and guys who, you know, can, can do certain things, that they do have a more well-rounded story and there's a lot to say about yeah. them and their lives are their lives. Um, do you think that, I mean, would you agree that, that that's kind of where we're going? Do you think that there's more that we have to do as writers or as fans to kind of understand baseball players? I would say this is just a general case for athletes and celebrities as a whole. Um, one of the things that I love about sports writing is that, you know, I think sports puts people in really extreme circumstances, whether that's attention, fame, pressure. Um, and as a result, it kind of stretches the bounds of humanity. Um, and it, it puts people in these extreme situations where they have to react. Um, and I think it, it, it becomes a really interesting reflection to view society um, and, and where we are today. Um, and I think that Mark's story really resonated with me because uh, a lot of athletes are, uh, you know, they, they can only imagine themselves doing baseball, and if they don't have baseball, they don't have anything. Um, and that is obviously worked out for a lot of people. Um, but there's also a lot of people where baseball isn't necessarily their favorite sport, and they're doing it professionally because that's what they're good at, and that's what they're making money for. And so 
I think trying to humanize these athletes um, and and really kind of grasp the fact that while sports is the escape for a lot of people, it is these people's jobs, and it is uh, you know as as much passion and, and love and sentimentality that we attach to a lot of our sports teams. And I, I personally this as a Red Sox fan, um, you know, for a lot of these guys, they don't hold the same attachment to these teams as we do. Um, and so to figure out like what these guys think and on a day-to-day basis and, and how they go about their lives. And really, you know, Gary Smith from Sports Illustrated, you know, the legendary sports writer, he used to say that his, his, his mentality for, for writing his own pieces and profiling people is to try to figure out what the biggest problem in someone's life is and how they go about dealing with it every single day. And I think that's such a smart and interesting way to look at athletes. Um, and, and it provides a really interesting lens to just talk about people uh, because sports, as I said before, really does put, um, you know, athletes in, in kind of incredible circumstances that, that people need to figure out how to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Well, it's a really, really good piece. And, again, if you uh, haven't read it, you should go to Bleacher Report right now and read it. It will be up there. Um, June Lee, the staff writer for Bleacher Report, you can follow him at Twitter at IamJuneLee. That is I-A-M-J-O-O-N-L-E-E. Uh, June, thank you so much for coming on the Philly Nation podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. A few days ago, Todd Zalecki with MLB.com, Phillies.com, reported that Citizens Bank Park will have some changes in 2018. First off, the Phillies are going to increase the amount of protective netting at the ballpark. They're going to make it now 12 feet behind both dugouts. Uh, It'll be extended to sections 115 and 132, Zalecki reports. Now, this, of course, coming alongside uh, the announcement that every major league team will now have protective netting at their ballparks, which I think is a no-brainer. It's a great move. It didn't really hamper anybody's enjoyment of the game. It hasn't done that. More importantly, it keeps everybody safe, especially in those first rows where balls come off bats and they come really fast at you. And bats come at you, too, as well. Bats have been known to fly into stands. Uh, There have been some injuries. People have gotten hurt by balls that have hit them coming out from home plate area. And it just makes a lot of sense for Major League Baseball to really get on top of this. Also for the Phillies to go even further with their rule. Why not have some protective netting around home plate and as much as you can? It just makes most sense to be keeping people safe when they're enjoying the game. The other change that will be happening to Citizens Bank Park in 2018 is the entire stadium will be smoke-free. That means you cannot smoke in Citizens Bank Park at all which uh, adds to the number of smoke-free ballparks in the league. There are more than you think, and I think that's great because, you know, smoking is not great for you, and it's something that is obviously, you know, polluting, and and people, you know, can breathe it in, and that also is a health risk. And so it's just wonderful that the Phillies are just going that step further to assure that their fans are safe and they're happy and they don't get sick and they're healthy and everything is all Jake there. We continue to be in the deep freeze this offseason with the Phillies and everybody else in baseball making no moves at all over the last few weeks, aside from the occasional minor league signing. Of course, the Phillies did make the big splash early in the offseason by picking up Carlos Santana and then Pat Neshek and Tommy Hunter. But most of all, we've been looking for free agent or trade pitching, and that hasn't happened. 
Will it happen? Well, I don't know. The Phillies are probably not in line to make a big overture to someone like a U Darvish, although there has been whispers that the Phillies might meet Darvish if there is a smaller deal to be had there. Same thing for Jake Arrieta, I'm sure, but the Phillies are not a major player for a pitcher at this point. They might actually go with what they have. There have been reports that the Phillies are actually kind of happy with the young talent that they have assembled in their pitching staff. I know you might be laughing at that because they were not very good last year, but the Phillies have high hopes for them. We're talking about, obviously, Vince Velasquez still getting another shot. Jared Eikhoff, who was hurt for a good portion of last year and might still turn into a decent pitcher here. Then you also have guys like Jake Thompson, uh, Ben Lively, Mark Leiter Jr., Zach Eflin, who's been hurt a lot. And of course, Nick Pavetta, who the Phillies might be highest on. There have been a lot of reports about how the Phillies love Pavetta's stuff. And I did a piece just a few weeks ago at philliesnation.com about why his stuff is good, but also why it wasn't working a lot of times. Here's the deal with Pavetta. Lefties are not hitting him very well at all, which is great. But righties are hitting him extremely well at times, mostly against his fastball. If Pavetta throws his fastball against a right-handed hitter, that right-handed hitter has a slugging percentage that is equal to Giancarlo Stanton's slugging percentage from 2017, which was, by the way, the best in baseball. So, basically, right-handed hitters are absolutely slaughtering Nick Pavetta's fastball. How does he change that? Well, what I found was that against lefties, Pavetta was throwing three pitches, really four, but three pitches more often. The fastball, which was pretty good against left-handed hitters. A changeup, which was working good against left-handed hitters. Sometimes it was hit, but at least he sprinkled it in. He also threw a slider, which is very good. His slider is quite good and unhittable. And a curveball at times that could get hit sometimes. Against righties, however, Pavetta was only throwing three pitches. The fastball, slider, and curveball. The curveball was getting hit pretty decently. The slider wasn't getting hit much, but the fastball was getting killed. If Pavetta throws a changeup against right-handed hitters, then he might actually see some success. Not because they can't hit the changeup, but just because it's a changeup. It's a pitch that throws people off and makes people think about what they have to hit. They're not necessarily sitting on a fastball when they see that release and that same grip. So, if Pavetta sprinkles in that fourth pitch, he might actually have a lot more success. The other thing that I saw was that the fastball was being thrown a little bit too much against right-handed hitters, which caused them to just know that when Pavetta was throwing against them, they were probably going to see at least one fastball per count, and that fastball will probably have to be in the zone because he wants to get a strike with it. That means you're going to hit it. That means you're going to hit it hard, and you're going to hit it far. So if Pavetta sprinkles in the slider a bit more, which is a quite good pitch, throws more change-ups that can maybe get over for strikes, he'll probably have more success against right-handed hitters in 2018. And even if he has a little bit more success against righties, his ERA is going to climb down. It was like the worst over all professional pitchers who had enough innings that he had last year, about 120 or so. If he throws more change-ups against right-handed hitters and sprinkles in the slider a bit more, I would guarantee you that he becomes much more of a league average pitcher against right-handed hitters. Factor that in with his above-average uh, above average stats against left-handed hitters, Pavetta could be akin to a number three or four starter next season. If he is that, that's a great sign. That means the Phillies have at least two guys in the rotation that they can count on into the future. Velasquez could be another guy. Eikhoff could be another guy. If the Phillies can find two of these guys and make sure that they are good enough to be in the major leagues going past 2018, then I think the Phillies have won this whole experiment with trying to figure out who the best young pitcher is. Between Pavetta, Velasquez, Lively, Thompson, Leiter, Eflin, 
and um, Eikhoff, if just two of those guys become major league rotation-ready pitchers, the Phillies have a victory. Then they can add the pitcher that they want to add next offseason or maybe at the trade deadline. And by 2019, you'll see a relatively competent rotation that can pair with a pretty good offense, and the Phillies then could potentially compete for a wild card berth. Well, that is it for this week's Phillies Nation podcast. My thanks to June Lee with Bleacher Report for the conversation earlier about uh, Mark Appel. My thanks to bensound.com for the music. As always, go to philliesnation.com for all of your news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more. Follow us at facebook.com slash philliesnation, Twitter at philliesnation, Instagram at philliesnation underscore. And go Eagles. Go Eagles. Win Sunday. Beat the Patriots. Give them hell. Give them a great defensive effort. Nick Foles is going to come through. It's going to happen, guys. We're going to do it. I swear it's going to happen. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles. Until next time on the Phillies Nation podcast, I'm Tim Malcolm. See you later.